right, it's Dr. Allo again. So today we are going to talk more heart disease in women. Today we're going to focus on menopause because a lot of women uh, are going through menopause and they're like, Dr. Allo, I'm going through the transition. What should I do? So it is, you know, February, it's Heart Health Awareness Month. So I figured we would touch on all things women. So let's talk menopause. So first of all, without question, if you've listened to me in the past, the number one killer of all women is heart disease. Heart disease kills one out of every three women in the United States. And while something like breast cancer kills one one out of every 33 women in the United States. Now, if you look at worldwide numbers or even in the United States, heart disease is still the number one killer of women. More people die, more women die of heart disease than all cancers combined. So just think about that. The top causes of death in women, um, all cancers the heart disease beats all cancers combined. So let's take a look at, you know, just briefly, what are the things that cause um, that cause death in men and women? Um, so first of all, the number one killer is heart disease. Without question, if you are a woman in the United States or in the world, the number one most likely thing to kill you would be heart disease. Number two uh, is cancer, if you haven't guessed it. But that's why I always say um, more than all cancers combined uh, is because if you combine all forms of cancer, whether it's ovarian or uh, lung or, you know, whatever, uh, uterine, cervical, breast, uh, you, you know, all these other cancers that you can imagine, prostate, you know, colorectal, whatever, all of them combined, heart disease kills the most amount of uh, people, more than all cancers combined. So number one would be heart disease. Number two would be cancers. The next one would be chronic lower respiratory uh, infections. These are like your emphysema, COPD. These have to do a little bit sort of with lung cancer because if you're a smoker, you generally get these more. Some people can get these uh, lower respiratory diseases from really bad like asthma or allergies. But generally, when we talk about chronic lower respiratory diseases, we're talking about your like emphysemas and bronchitis, chronic bronchitis, uh, pneumonia, or COPD, not pneumonia. We'll get to the infectious stuff later. The next one after that, number four on the list would be stroke. Strokes cause the fourth most amount of heart disease uh, death in women and strokes are somewhat preventable a lot of them are preventable number one if you get your blood pressure under control number two if you get your ldl cholesterol down vascular dementia and vascular ischemic strokes the number one cause of strokes worldwide is um, uh, vascular you know ischemic strokes these are like plaque in your carotid arteries and your brain arteries breaking off rupturing and uh, causing harm so Stroke is another one. Um, it's the fourth one on the list. It has to do with your vascular system, and it is related to atherosclerosis because it's atherosclerosis in your brain uh, as opposed to in your heart. The next one is Alzheimer's disease. I have a whole chapter on this in my uh, new cholesterol book. I'm not going to dive too deep into it. If you want to learn more about cholesterol and when my cholesterol book is coming out, go to dralloanet slash cholesterol. You will get a preview. You'll get my free lipid guide and a whole bunch of other cool stuff. Um, the next one is unintentional injuries. So now we're at like one, two, three, four, five, six. So six unintentional injuries. These are obviously like your falls, your car accidents, plane accidents. I don't know, getting gunshot wounds, stuff like that. Well, those are not unintentional. I guess those are intentional, but you get what I'm saying. These are injuries, um, you know, falling off the stairs, getting into a car accident, things like that. Um, the next one is diabetes. Now we're up to number seven. The complications of diabetes are the seventh one on the list. Um, these are like your microvascular um, complications, the kidney disease, the 
amputations, the needing dialysis from frying your kidneys, all that kind of stuff. Um, the next one is influenza and pneumonia. Women, after you know, especially after a certain age, 65 and up, generally speaking, depending on how strong or how weak you are, the flu uh, can kill you. So can pneumonia. So these are the infectious kind of uh, causes. We, we talked about chronic lower respiratory diseases like your emphysema, COPD, et cetera, but these are the infectious ones, all these new viruses and pneumonias and bacteria in your lungs and you know what have you. The next one is kidney disease. Now, this is somewhat related to hypertension. A lot of the number, the number one and two causes of kidney disease are generally longstanding hypertension, which also causes strokes and heart attacks, and longstanding diabetes. Both of those together, in fact, are what destroys your uh, uh, kidneys. And then there's lots of like genetic, you know, uh, kidney type issues with the um, you know, IgE infiltration and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Congenitally, you know, you could be born with one kidney. Um, you know, I don't know a lot. I'm not a nephrologist, but there's lots of other crazy genetic stuff that happens with kidneys. But the vast majority of deaths from kidney disease are usually happening due to end-stage renal disease from long-standing, you know, hypertension, diabetes, atherosclerosis, just not being uh, treated. And the last one on the list is septicemia. Um, this is sepsis, septic shock. This is what you know, you get an infection, it gets into your bloodstream, you don't recover, you know, it gets real bad, those kind of things. That is septicemia. So the question now becomes, what about menopause? And like, what are the um, diseases that, that hurt women? So obviously, people have always argued, and I hear people online say this all the time, well, you know, there's not been any studies on women during menopause and taking statin therapies. Well, that doesn't mean very much. We have uh, the actual study. So in the past, what's happened, and maybe I'll just read you this part out of my uh, cholesterol book because I feel like it's super important and I don't want to miss anything. And just so you guys know, my cholesterol book um, was co-written and co-authored by Dr. Thomas Dayspring. Obviously, I wrote the book, but he helped with the editing. He's the co-editor of the lipid and lipoprotein section. He was the first physician ever in the United States to be both certified by the North American Menopause Society as well as by the American Board of Clinical Lipidology. So he was a lipidologist as well as a menopause specialist. So I'm going to read you uh, from my book so that, you know, I don't miss anything and that we cover it um, as detailed as possible. Women generally develop heart disease 10 to 15 years after their male counterparts. It was thought that estrogen was protective and offered protection up until menopausal transition, MT. MT can affect lipids. So initially we used to give women only estrogen and took a large and it took a large clinical trial to show that CVD did not improve. Hence the guidelines have been changed and estrogen only therapy is not always recommended but it depends on many factors. Studies and then there's three studies that have been linked. Estrogen therapy was prescribed alone in women without a uterus or in those with a uterus. It was combined with a progestogen, often the progestin called methylhydroxyprogesterone acetate. This is called estrogen progesterone therapy, EPT. Of note, a progestin is a synthetic progesterone. Human ovaries make progesterone. The term progestogen includes progesterone and all progestins, of which there are many. Previously, it was called hormone replacement therapy. Now it is called menopausal hormone replacement therapy, or MHT. MHT includes ET and EPT. 
which is the estrogen and the estrogen plus progestin therapy. Lipids, glucose, blood pressure, obesity, vascular health, and metabolic syndrome may worsen during menopausal transition. It's important for you and your physicians to be aware of this and adjust as necessary. Keep very good track of how you feel and what is changing. It is not always that easy to tell. There are approximately 55 to 60 million women in the United States who are pre- and perimenopausal and need to decide on hormone replacement therapy. There were very large databases of women established to study these effects and see if there was an effect on cardiovascular risk. Additionally, databases were established to examine if there was a link between thromboembolic complications like pulmonary embolism, a clot in your lungs, or blood clots in your legs, DVT, deep vein thrombosis. The Women's Health Initiative, WHI, is one of the larger studies. There are many others. The Cochrane Database is another large database to extrapolate large amounts of data and information. In the Women's Health Initiative data, men menopausal hormone replacement therapy provided no evidence for the primary or secondary prevention of all-cause mortality, uh, cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, angina, chest pain, or myocardial revascularization, needing a stent or open-heart surgery to bypass blocked arteries. In fact, menopausal hormone replacement therapy improved all-cause mortality. The 2015 Cochrane database compared menopausal hormone therapy with placebo-provided risk data. Menopausal hormone uh, replacement therapy was associated with an additional 6 strokes per 10,000 women, 8 cases of venous thromboembolism, blood clots or per 10,000 women, and 4 cases of pulmonary embolism per 10,000 women. This was alarming, but not an excessive amount of excess cases or risk. Long-term mortality for MHT from the Women's Health Initiative disclosed no increased risk for all-cause mortality, CVD mortality, or cancer mortality during 18 years of follow-up for women taking estrogen alone for a median of 7.2 years, or for women taking estrogen plus medroxyprogesterone acetate for a median of 5.6 years. This was obviously very promising and helped ease the fears. Most contemporary recommendations for MHT are limited to low-risk women less than 10 years, since the onset of menopause and under the age of 60 years, a different population from M from the Women's Health Initiative women who were on average several years postmenopausal and had worse risk factors. The Pittsburgh Women's Healthy Lifestyle Project, WHLP, was probably the first and probably still the only randomized control trial designed specifically to assess the effects of a diet and exercise intervention during the menopausal transition. Can diet and lifestyle ease or improve cardiovascular risk factors in the pre- and perimenopausal period? The Women's Healthy Lifestyle Project trial randomized 535 healthy premenopausal women, 44 to 50 years of age, to an assessment-only control group or a five-year cognitive behavioral program that included a hypocaloric diet with reduced saturated fat and cholesterol combined with moderately increased leisure time physical activity. An LDL cholesterol increase in the control group during perimenopause to postmenopause was blunted in the intervention group. In addition, the intervention prevented weight gain from premenopause to perimenopause to postmenopause and reduced triglycerides, systolic blood pressure, diastolic blood pressure, blood glucose, and blood insulin levels. 
MHT use did not modify um, menopausal hormone replacement therapy did not use did not modify the association between treatment groups and changes in the LDL cholesterol and other cardiovascular risk factors. In addition, the intervention slowed CIMT, carotid media intimal thickening, progression among perimenopausal, postmenopausal women to 0.008 millimeters per year for the control group versus 0.004 millimeters per year for the intervention group, whereas no differences were seen in the premenopausal women. These were obviously all favorable and good news. The intervention group did better with lifestyle modifications around the menopausal transition. Lifestyle interventions worked. Read the full WHLP article, and there's a link there. Ultimately, the North American Menopause Society, NAMS, the American College of Endocrinology, and the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force also identified that MHT is neither beneficial nor indicated for preventing or reducing cardiovascular disease. After reviewing all of the evidence, they determined that you should not base your decision of MHT on whether or not you think it will have beneficial or negative effects on cardiovascular health. With all of that said, many women experience severe menopausal symptoms that affect their quality of life, develop unfavorable biomarkers like insulin, lipids, fibrinogen, plasminogen, obesity, thyroid, and CRP, and report unpleasant physical effects from the menopause. MHT, menopausal hormone replacement therapy, still remains the most effective treatment for significant vasomotor symptoms, VMS, and genitourinary syndrome of menopause. The 2017 NAMS position paper outlines an individual approach to CVD risk assessment and recommends low-dose MHT for short periods of time for management of severe menopause symptoms. This is what most societies have adopted. Use a low dose for low dose for as short as possible. The American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology and NAMS support a customized and individualized risk assessment for women considering MHT rather than a one-size-fits-all absolute recommendation. The atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease pooled cohort equation risk calculator is useful for assessing a woman's risk of CVD over the next 10 years and for her lifetime. Calculator, link to calculator. But but as I have discussed in other chapters, the 10-year risk calculators severely underestimate risk and not enough people will end up on treatment for elevated biomarkers and lipids which is why I advocate for 30-year risk assessments and very individualized care. There is a link to the 30-year assessment tool. While many argue that ASCVD risk calculator underestimates risk in women because it only includes traditional risk factors and not unique risk characteristics in women, it is still probably useful for overall risk assessment and for patient education. I think for the vast majority of women, the risk calculator is good enough but I personally prefer to be more aggressive and not wait for an event to take place. A recent joint presidential statement of the American College of Cardiology and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, ACOG, recommends individual CVD risk assessment at all well-women visits and use of the pooled cohort equation. Link above. CVD risk assessment should additionally include a history of pregnancy complications or pregnancy complications, particularly hypertension, preeclampsia and gestational diabetes, 
rheumatologic and chronic inflammatory disorders in addition to traditional CVD risk factors such as smoking, high cholesterol, hypertension, diabetes, chronic kidney disease, and metabolic syndrome. The patient's family history and personal history should also be taken into consideration. We need to evaluate their diet, obesity, insulin resistance, advanced lipid testing, family history, smoking history, lifestyle, and many other factors. It needs to be individualized and customized. Further, we need to evaluate whether or not they have a history of previous cancer treatment, obesity, sedentary lifestyle, C-reactive protein, and clotting disorders should be included in the assessment risk for VTE, as well as for CVD. The menopausal hormone replacement therapy paradox is that while hormone replacement has shown to improve LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, triglyceride levels, and even insulin resistance, randomized control trials of MHT in postmenopausal women have failed to demonstrate any reduction in cardiovascular events. The American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology ultimately recommend individualized decision-making and being on uh, menopausal hormone replacement therapy for a short period of time. They publish the graphic below. If you look at the summary graphic below, it will help you decide. If you are very high risk and have already had ASCVD or peripheral artery disease, it is best to avoid or significantly minimize MHT and menopausal hormone replacement therapy and hormone replacement therapy and stay on lipid-lowering therapy. On the opposite end of the spectrum, if you are very low risk, quite healthy with no risk factors, you can take hormone replacement therapy and still try to minimize the amount of time on therapy. If you are in between those two extremes, you need to have a serious discussion with your physician about the risks versus benefits. And then next is the traffic light graphic that they have where they have higher risk, medium risk, and lower risk. They have like a red, yellow, and green. And then there's links to all of the associations, the risk calculators, and whatnot. Um, the next paragraph says, Many online influencers will read the American Heart Association statement incorrectly and think it means we should leave women alone and not treat their elevated lipid levels. This would be a huge disservice to women. They point to the statement and say that the statement itself states that there were no benefits in menopausal women for lipid-lowering therapy. This is obviously false. Previously, cardiovascular studies didn't include enough women because the medical profession did not think women had heart disease. Well, they were wrong. Heart disease is the number one killer of women. They point to the study and say that, well, look, women didn't benefit from primary prevention. This is not true. Most studies now contain equal amounts of men and women. In fact, it's split down the middle. One thing to remember is most women don't get heart disease until well after menopause. So short-term perimenopausal studies may not show benefit. The average age of menopause in the United States is 51 most women don't start experiencing the symptoms of heart disease until age 65 or later. This is about a 10 or 15 year delay. It was previously thought that this delayed, that this delayed effect is due to the protective effect of estrogen, and once levels are reduced, then heart disease starts to take hold. We may not ever fully understand this or have a final answer. The data has gone back and forth. The Jupiter trial that I've discussed extensively before did show a 46% reduction in all endpoints for women. This was a primary prevention study of high-risk individuals with elevated CRP. In the subgroup analysis in Jupiter, women benefited more than men, actually. Read it again. There's a link to the Jupiter trial. A direct quote from the study. 
all pre-specified subgroups within the Jupiter within Jupiter significantly benefited from rosuvastatin, including those previously considered to be low risk, such as women, those with body mass indices less than 25, those with metabolic syndrome, non-smokers, non-hypertensives, and those with Framingham risk scores less than 10%. Notice the benefits were also shown in people who were very lean and did not have metabolic syndrome. Hence, the lean mass hyperresponder theory also gets thrown out the window. It does not matter if you are super lean and have no insulin resistance. If you ended up with an LDL cholesterol under 55, you no longer had atherosclerotic heart disease. While the guidelines might not be able to say it explicitly because you need to you need very specific and targeted data, we do know that women do benefit tremendously from lipid-lowering therapy across all age groups. The Jupiter trial is just one such study that's nearly 20 years old. We have many more. Going even further, going even further, the European Atherosclerosis Society is recommending even more aggressive therapy for women. They note that while the heart disease, they note that while heart disease is still the number one killer in women over 65 years of age, it is also the leading cause of death in middle-aged women ages 45 to 64. That cohort is growing rapidly relative to other disease states. Here there's a graphic of the women in the various different uh, disease states from the study, and then there's a link to the study. Take a look at this chart from the study. For every single measurable outcome, women had it worse for every one millimole increase higher LDL cholesterol. The first outcome at the top is myocardial infarction, or heart attack. Women had double the risk of men for every one millimole, 38.6 milligrams per deciliter, increase in LDL cholesterol. Look at cardiovascular death. The risk for women is seven times that of their male counterparts. All-cause mortality is four times higher in women than for men for every one millimole increase in LDL cholesterol. It is astonishing that we ignore our female patients and tell them that lipid-lowering therapy, quote, hasn't been proven yet in women, unquote, this is absurd. Women who experience early menopause, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia during pregnancy, have PCOS, have autoimmune disease, have chronic kidney disease, are higher risk for early atherosclerosis. We also know that while men with atherosclerosis will first present with a cardiovascular event, women will first present with a stroke. The European statement goes into great depth as to why estrogen and estradiol confer protection to women by reducing atherosclerotic plat burden and nitric oxide production in the arteries. Nitric oxide helps dilate arteries to keep them open. Don't get any ideas though, taking nitric oxide doesn't seem to confer benefit. Further, estrogen appears to have some anti-inflammatory effects which also help reduce the inflammatory milieu and reduce atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. Estrogen helps to modulate reverse cholesterol transport to lower overall LDL cholesterol levels. All lipid levels increase with pregnancy as well. Here's another graphic showing uh, pregnancy and total cholesterol. And, and the explanation is below with the link. Statin therapy is just as efficacious in men and women as noted in many trials discussed previously. Another very large meta-analysis looked at the cholesterol treatment trialist collaboration database to compare men versus women on higher versus lower intensity statin therapy. They saw a similar reduction in major coronary events, coronary revascularization, and stroke in both men and women. They also found no adverse effect 
on rates of cancer incidence or non-cardiovascular mortality for either sex. This translated into reductions in all-cause mortality for both men and women. The European Atherosclerosis Society statement goes on to encourage the medical community to stop ignoring women and not treating them aggressively enough. They go on to conclude, quote, Underappreciation of women's ASCVD risk, missed or delayed diagnosis, and the undertreatment are important contributors, despite clear evidence that statin therapy is similarly efficacious in both sexes, women at high risk for ASCVD are less likely than men to be prescribed any statin therapy or receive a statin at guideline recommended intensity and are more likely to refuse or discontinue statin treatment due to perceived side effects. Clearly, action is needed to overcome these inequities, end quote. I highly recommend you read the full European Atherosclerotic Society statement, full ES statement, link. The graphical representation of their statement is below, and there's a really nice uh, graphic uh, posted there. You can find the above graphic at the link above from the EAS. Back to women and risk factors, the age at Menarche, age at first monthly period, is also a risk factor. Early Menarche is considered a risk factor for early atherosclerosis increased risk of death from cardiovascular cause or any cause. This is also true for late menarche. Women who have menarche at age 17 or later are also at risk of increased cardiovascular mortality. Parity, or carrying a child and giving birth, parity, carrying a child and giving birth, meaning like pregnancy, can also affect cardiovascular outcomes. Women who have had two births have the lowest CVD risk, while women with greater than five births have, had, have the highest CVD risk. Further reading, there's a link to that study. Should women be treated aggressively for the primary prevention of heart disease? Should they be on statin therapy? Should they be on aspirin? Should we treat their risk factors aggressively? It obviously depends on age and possible pregnancy. The American College of Cardiology has published a fantastic review of the evidence. This graphic is from that review. Link to the summaries below the graphic. So there's another link here of also like traffic lights. There's a green traffic light, a yellow traffic light, and a red traffic light that's sort of matches the one we described earlier. If you are very high risk, uh, obviously, um, if you are, if you plan on getting pregnant, um, then you, you, um, let me see, let me read this real quick. So there's, so it says stands for atherosclerosis prevention in women. They should be given, the, the first one is yes, it's green. Secondary prevention, primary hyperlipidemia greater than 190, diabetes, primary prevention age 40 to 75 if they're higher risk and intermediate risk. There's a hard no for primary prevention in women who are pregnant or intending to be pregnant. Obviously, you don't want to be on statins. And then there's a medium or maybe in primary prevention where people are like kind of borderline risk and if they have discussed the topic and don't want to be on medications. Read the summary of the updated guidelines for the primary prevention of cardiovascular disease in women in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology state-of-the-art review with a link. My final thoughts on menopausal hormone replacement therapy and hormone replacement therapy. As physicians, we should treat lipids, diabetes, blood pressure, recommend a heart-healthy diet, exercise program, and refer menopausal patients to physicians certified by the Menopause Society. Find a certified menopause practitioner with the link there. We need to do a better job and be more aggressive in treating women. We need to refer them to the specialist earlier. We have always thought of heart disease as a disease for men, but clearly it's also the number one cause of death among women. So there you have it, folks. That was, I didn't mean for this to go that long, but that is the entirety of the current opinion 
on atherosclerosis and heart disease in men and women. Well, just women, actually. And the second, the chapter right after that is about men and testosterone replacement therapy. So we'll get into that one later. But this is everything you need to know about menopause, premenopause, perimenopause, women's heart disease risk. Should you be on statins? Should you not be on statins? When to be on statins? Who needs to be treated or not treated? What's a hard stop for treatment? What's not a hard stop for treatment? All of that. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. This is the kind of stuff that we talk about in my uh, community. If you want to talk about stuff like this and want to have full-time access to a cardiologist, you can text me all day and all night through the app and get on our Zoom Lives. Every Monday uh, at 9 p.m. we do a Zoom Live. You can jump on that. This uh, would be the place to go. Go to drallo.net slash community. Type in the code one month, one M-O-N-T-H, all caps, and you'll get the first month free. You can join us and see if you like it. If you don't like it, you can easily cancel. You don't have to stay with us if you don't want to. I hope you appreciate this podcast. This was a lot of fun making it. Um, I know I've been on a lot of podcasts talking about women's health. This one is probably the most inclusive and detailed one of everything women's health when it comes to heart disease. So if you like it, share it with some friends. And I really would like some more subscribers. If you guys could subscribe some more and leave me some really awesome, amazing reviews, I would truly appreciate it. Um, The more reviews and the more subscribers you get, obviously, the more they push your podcast out there. We really need to spread like real, true cardiology, heart health advice. And this is my way of giving back to society. You can help spread that by sharing it. We'll see you in the next episode. Peace.